Brothers and sisters, welcome to the Christian Fishers of Men Book of Mormon series. We are on episode 4, 1 Nephi chapter 4. Uh, let's go ahead and get into it. I was trying to get this done um, trying to get this done yesterday, but it just didn't happen. I had things come up. We had pumpkins to carve. There were things to be done. Pumpkin seeds to cook, to roast, all that good stuff. Tis the season. So we spent some time with the kids, got that done, but um, I'm going to get this out now. This has been really fun, really gratifying, uh, very rewarding to be able to dive in and just see what we can get beneath the scriptural dirt here. See what we can get beneath the surface and, and what kind of things and themes that we can we can pull up, what kind of Hebrew stuff we can look into. So let's go ahead and get started here, chapter 4. And it came to pass that I spake unto my brethren, saying, Let us go up again unto Jerusalem, and let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Okay, let me click on my note here. Now remember, from the sounds of it here, they, they had to flee out of Jerusalem. And now he's saying, let us go up unto Jerusalem. It makes me think that they got some distance away from Jerusalem. How he's saying, okay, let's let's go back to Jerusalem now. They were hiding out, lost all their property. Angel has to show up until Laman and Lemuel stop beating on their brothers. Okay. So he says here, let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Now, a theme that I'm noticing here is that whenever there is a word that has a footnote on it, see if you can look up the Hebrew word that they would have used for that. Um, this is where the Old Testament is invaluable because you can look up phrase, phrases and you can look up words and stuff and we can get a pretty dang good idea as to what the Hebrew word that Nephi would have used here, right? So we look at the word faithful in Hebrew and interestingly enough, the Hebrew word that they use for faithful is one that we say all the time. It's amen. And I thought, I was very surprised at that. I thought, amen? What the heck? Um, so amen is, is most commonly known as the word that we would say, you know, when you say at the end of a prayer and stuff like that, is like it's, it's, it expresses an agreement or an affirmation of what was just said, right? I've even heard it used uh, with the idea of like, so shall it be type thing, right? But the idea there is most commonly that it is used as, as affirmation and agreement. But also, um, in the Bible, it's also used to convey the idea of faithfulness or reliability. I thought that was just kind of an interesting little little treat of knowledge there. I thought, that is so cool. There's even some phrases in in the Old Testament that you can look up that are talking about the Lord, and it'll translate into English as, like, the, the Lord who is faithful, right? But the word, the Hebrew word they're using is amen in conjunction with that. And looking at the context, you would have to know, okay, now it means faithful instead of it meaning, you know, meaning the, the uh, traditional affirmation or or, you know, what what we would use amen in English like. It was, I just thought it was really interesting and kind of a neat little 
tidbit of knowledge there, but you can look through the Old Testament, you can highlight that, and now you'll know what Hebrew word they used when they were talking about being faithful, right? Really cool stuff. Anyway, so let us be faithful, let us be amen in keeping the commandments of the Lord, for behold, he is mightier than all the earth, and why not mightier than Laban and his fifty, yea, or even than his tens of thousands? So, again, we get the idea that Laban is at least a captain of 50. He's at least a captain of 50, if not more, right? Because, and, and I think Nephi is, in my opinion, I would say Laban is a captain of 50. I think that the evidence points to that. The context that we've had so far points to him being a captain of 50. And I think Nephi here is just saying, hey... He's, you know, even if he had tens of thousands, it doesn't matter because the Lord is is mightier than that. He's This isn't a problem for God, okay? That's the idea being conveyed here. Verse 2. Therefore, let us go up. Let us be strong like unto Moses. Uh, for he truly spake unto the waters of the Red Sea, and they divided hither and thither. Okay, so... Again, let's let's look at at the Hebrew word here. I just think it's kind of cool to do this. It, it, for me, it it really makes it fun and opens things up. But if you look at the Hebrew word for strong, um, and we use Deuteronomy chapter eleven verse eight, the Hebrew word used for strength is uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. It's kail. The word is used to convey strength, might, or power. Okay. So in this context, um, a possible English translation uh, would include strength, might, power, or vigor, uh, just depending on, on how they're using it in the verse, right? I think, I think that's really cool because it's, it's specifically talking about Moses as well, right? And what's cool is that we will see this theme play out as we continue on, especially in these early chapters of the Book of Mormon. Nephi is setting a really good example for us as he is likening the scriptures and this and these these scripture stories that he would have been taught as a boy. The same things that we are taught to this day, which is just it's cool to think about that we would learn the same stories. But he's applying that uh, to them and saying, "Hey, let's let's be strong. Let's be let's be Kail, like like unto Moses, right? Let's let let's have that that uh, uh, spiritual power, that spiritual strength, like Moses did." And then he goes on to say, "For he truly spake unto the waters of the Red Sea, and they divided hither and thither, and our fathers came through out of captivity." Okay, now pay attention to this, guys. You can easily read over this, but pay attention. And our fathers came through out of captivity on dry ground, and the armies of Pharaoh did follow and were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. Okay, this is a theme so far. The first four chapters here, this is the theme right here. It just spelled it out for you, okay? Nephi is understanding something. 
And this is meant for us to understand and apply in the same way that Nephi is doing right now. We're reading him do it. We're reading about him doing it. Okay? The whole point of what they're doing right now is because they are having to flee out of Jerusalem, which at that point in time has become like Babylon, right? It has become worldly. It has lost... Um, they have, as children of Israel, they have ceased to follow the commandments and are now about ready to be judged. Okay? So Lehi and his family um, have been commanded to flee out of spiritual Babylon. Okay? It's cool to see Nephi understanding that and then teaching his brothers, right? In, in a roundabout way, He's teaching his brothers, and he's saying, Guys, our, our ancestors, Moses, the children of Israel, they did the same thing, right? They had to get out of Egypt. And, you know, they were commanded to get out of Egypt. And, and obviously, the Lord is going to back up his people when he commands them to do something, right? First Nephi 3.7. He's going to prepare a way for them to do what he has commanded them to do. He has commanded us to do something, to get the plates, right? He's going to create a way for us to get the plates. Really, really cool little nougat here. That, that You should mark that down in your scriptures if you haven't already, okay? The theme of leaving, them leaving the spiritual Babylon, hearkening back and likening the scriptures of Moses and the children of Israel leaving spiritual Babylon, leaving Egypt, and us, right now, you will see this come up, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time not jumping ahead, but this is a theme that's going to come up, that Nephi is going to use Isaiah to, to uh, illustrate the point as well, that we are to leave spiritual Babylon. This is part of the advice that the Book of Mormon is, is giving us, and a calling for us to get out of Babylon and to get back to... Uh, to being children of Israel, to worshiping God, okay? Really, really cool stuff. I could talk about that some more, but I'm going to cease. I'm going to cease and desist for a moment here, okay? But just understand that that is like a central theme to First Nephi. Okay. Verse 3. Now behold, ye know that this is true, and ye also know that an angel has spoken unto you. Wherefore can ye doubt? Okay, not a whole lot of wiggle room here, guys. When an angel comes and speaks to you and tells you this stuff, and you've got the scriptures laid before you, you know that your pops is a prophet of God. He has spoken the word of God, the will of God, and you now just have to basically make it happen. Okay, you you have to do everything you can to make it happen. Not a lot of argument there. Let us go up. The Lord is able to deliver us. That word, deliver, okay, makes me think of Moses. He's, he's speaking in the language. He's using that mosaic language, deliver us, even as our fathers, and to destroy Laban, even as the Egyptians, okay? Liken the scriptures, guys. It's not just good advice. I think that it's, I think that you, you could go so far as to say that it is a means of spiritual survival in these last days of the last days. Okay. 
spiritual survival. That'd be a good thing to write there next to your, uh, your verse 3 at the end. Uh, verse 4, Now when I had spoken these words, they were yet wroth, and did still continue to murmur. Nevertheless, they did follow me up until we came without the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, attitude problem. <laughs> okay, that'd be a good thing to write off next to your uh, verse 4 there. Attitude problem. Oh, there's so many things that you can solve by having a good attitude. I was just explaining to my boys um, yesterday, I believe. We were talking about how, you know, in basic training, in the military in general, I'm pretty sure this is universal. I definitely heard it in, in the Army uh, branch side of things. But I'm, I don't know where it originated. I know the Marine Corps has it, okay? And it's, it's, it's called Embrace the Suck, Okay. Embrace the suck. That means things are going to suck. There's no escaping it. Okay. It sometimes things are just hard and difficult and they suck. Okay. The term embrace the suck, it is <laughs> it is almost spiritual, okay? It's almost spiritual. And when you figure that out in the military everything else becomes easier because it, all it is is an attitude change. It's like, look, accept the fact that this is going to be hard. Accept the fact that this is not going to be comfortable. This is not going to make you feel good. If you can accept that fact and embrace it and expect it and just know that this is how, how life is, your quality of life will go up tenfold because you know what's coming. You, ex you expect it and you accept it, and you say, I'm going to embrace the suck, okay? And <laughs> that's, I think that's what the idea that's being conveyed here as well, okay? If you don't embrace the suck, you will be miserable, and you will make everybody else around you miserable, and it will do no good. There's no use in being that way. You have to just embrace the suck, okay? I've written that in mine. You may not feel that's appropriate to write in yours. I'm, I'm a military guy, okay? I'm a veteran. It, it belongs in my scriptures. Uh, that's for you to choose. Uh, verse 5, And it was by night, and I caused that they should hide themselves without the walls. And after they had hid themselves, I, Nephi, crept into the city and went forth towards the house of Laban. Okay? Verse 6, very important, very important. Verse 6, And I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. I want to make an important distinction here, okay? We're going to go to the Book of Mormon student manual here, but I want to make uh, an Allen note here, just, just really quick before we get into that. I have heard this used in my life as an excuse to not plan and to just like kind of be lazy and be like, well, I'm just going to go not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. I'm going to go into this talk not knowing beforehand the things which I should talk about. And I'm not going to prepare because the Spirit will just take care of me. Uh, no, no. You, If you believe that, you are wrong, sir. You are wrong, okay? That's not how we do things. That's not how God does things. That's not how the Spirit does things. Notice, okay, look at the example. Look at the story that we're reading here, okay? They have done everything in their power that they can do. 
They have exhausted, literally exhausted all their options. They've thrown the Hail Mary pass. It did not work. Okay. It is now literally impossible for them to do anything. It's literally impossible. At that point, when you have exhausted all of your options, you've thrown your Hail Mary pass, that is when you say, okay, Lord, you have told me to do this. I've, I have nothing left. I have no other options but to just continue on and hope that you're going to back me up. And not just hope, but have faith that you're going to back me up because you commanded me to do this. And I know that you'll somehow prepare a way for, for this to happen. Okay, That is the situation that Nephi finds himself in now. That is why he can be led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which he can do. Okay. Um, going to the Book of Mormon Student Manual. Elder John H. Groberg of the Seventy challenged us, Be willing to take res reasonable risks. We live in an age of reason, logic, facts, and figures. These can be useful if kept in subjection to faith in the Lord, Jesus Christ. But if they ever take precedence over faith in Him, then they are not useful and can be harmful. I have found in my life that most of the good decisions I have made may not have been made if they were based solely on logic or reason. Nephi was determined to do what God wanted him to do, even with logic to the contrary. The scripture tells us in 1 Nephi, uh, 1 Nephi chapter 4, verse 6, that he went forth not knowing beforehand what he should do, but knowing that he should obey God and get the plates. I suspect, had he listened only to reason... Okay, hold on. I love this part. This is, this is the rub right here. This is the crux of what he's talking about. I suspect, had he listened only to reason, Nephi and his brethren would still be waiting outside the walls of Jerusalem. I sometimes wonder if by our listening to reason and logic too much, and not trusting God enough, we may find ourselves waiting outside the walls of his holy city. That's a powerful statement right there, brothers and sisters. A powerful statement, okay? They wouldn't have, like, they wouldn't, they just would have gone home. They would have failed. They would have gone home because they went 90% of the way and they couldn't go that last 10%. That last 10% is what separates the men from the boys, okay? Those are the those are the uh, the man makers. Those are the woman makers. I'm talking about man and women of God. Okay, that is what makes a man and a woman of God is going that last ten percent after you've exhausted everything. That is when you you see the miracle happen, as we are about to read here with Nephi. Okay, verse seven. Nevertheless, I went forth. As I came near unto the house of Laban, I beheld a man, and he had fallen to the earth before me, for he was drunken with wine. Now this here, this reading this, what comes to mind is the scene from Ephraim's rescue, where Ephraim, he goes out there uh, to rescue the saints. It's winter, it's cold, it's snowing, they're in the mountains, it's freezing, the saints are literally about to die. They have, they are knocking on death's door. They have nothing, no food, no sustenance. If they don't have help, they're done. They're done. 
And Ephraim knows this. And so he's, he's up there in the mountains, and he um, gets off of his horse, and he says a prayer. And this is a true story, by the way. He says a prayer. And in his prayer, he says, Lord, I know that the buffalo have moved on. I know that, you know, there, there's no way, there's, they're not supposed to be any buffalo still here. But please, Lord, put a buffalo before me so that I can feed the saints when I, when I show up and I find them. And as he had no sooner finished his prayer, he looks up and he sees a buffalo within shooting distance of him and his horse, just, just chilling there looking at him. Perfect shot, turned to the side, okay? And I love what he says there. I don't know if he actually said this, but in the, in the movie portrayal, he says something to the effect of, well, geez, Lord, what took you so long? You know, because it was immediate. <laughs> and I love that. It's a parallel to what just happened here. Okay, Nephi, I'm sure, said a prayer. And, you know, as he goes into the city and stuff, there's Laban, drunk, laid out on the, on the floor. Okay, and I can imagine Nephi saying in Hebrew, Geez, Lord, what, what took you so long? You know, it, I just love that. I had to insert that. Uh, verse 8. And when I had come to him, I found that it was Laban. And I beheld his sword, and I drew it forth from the sheath thereof. Okay, now, again, let's think Hebrew here. Let's think Hebrew. Because I think if we can think Hebrew, we're going to get a lot of meaning out of reading the Book of Mormon, especially Nephi, as he was born and and raised and brought up on extreme Hebrew uh, writing, doctrine, poetry, okay, culture. So if you look at the sword um, in traditional ancient Hebrew symbolism, the sword is symbolic of justice and judgment, okay? It represents the idea of rendering a just and righteous verdict. A righteous and just verdict. This will play into the idea and the theme of what's about to happen, brothers and sisters. This symbolism is influenced by biblical references to the sword being an instrument of God's judgment and divine justice. Okay. That sets us up. We've taken the volleyball and we've just done a set now for, for a spike. A doctrinal spike. Okay, keep that in mind. Okay, continuing on. And the hilt thereof was of pure gold. What is, is pure gold symbolic of, brothers and sisters, in, in the ancient Hebrew? Well, it's got a few uh, different meanings that we can extrapolate and, and utilize here. Um, holiness and purity, okay? Divine presence and refinement and testing. Brothers and sisters, I can, I can tell you that all three of those symbolic meanings are going to come to, to play here in what's about ready to happen. This is something that a lot of people, it bothers them. But if we can think Hebrew, if we can dig, if we can study, and we know what kind of questions to ask, 
and we seek for, for knowledge from the Spirit, as well as doing our own research, we can come to some extremely cool conclusions that people of a Western mindset, we don't think that way, and we don't come to these conclusions on our own. We have to have help. Okay? And if you can train, train your mind and your eye to look for these things, like in verse 9, for example, And I beheld his sword, and I drew it forth from the sheath thereof. And the hilt thereof was of pure gold. Now think to yourself, why would Nephi explain this? Why wouldn't he, like if it was you and me, I'd say, I saw his sword and um, I grabbed it. I saw a sword and I picked it up. Nephi doesn't do that. He goes through the trouble and now remember, he's having to pound all these characters out in, in Reformed Egyptian not an easy task. If it was me, I'd be using shorthand all over the place, okay? But he goes through the trouble of explaining what the sword looked like. Talking about how the hilt was of pure gold. Now, whether he meant to or not, he is giving us some, some symbolic uh, spiritual stuff here, okay? He's setting up a bunch of symbolism for the story and for what's about to happen. Okay, don't sleep on that. You got to look for this stuff. It's going to help you understand the idea that's being translated, okay, from the Hebrew. Uh, continuing on, and the works, workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine, and I saw that the blade thereof was of the most precious steel. Verse 10 And it came to pass that I was constrained by the Spirit that I should kill Laban. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Now, hold on. Do, do we have a problem here? What about the Ten Commandments? Isn't one of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not kill? Do we have a problem here? Okay. Let's continue on, see if we can figure this out. But I said in my heart, Never at any time have I shed the blood of man. Now remember, one of the symbolic uh, meanings for the pure gold was refinement and testing. Okay. One of the uh, symbolic meanings for the sword uh, was justice. Okay, and judgment was the other one. We're talking about Laban here, right? And then he says, "And I shrunk." and I would that I might not slay him. Okay, let's pause here. Let's talk about this. As I asked you the question, do we have a problem here? No, we do not have a problem here, because we are thinking Hebrew, aren't we? Let's, let's go to the Hebrew, okay? I've heard this. Uh, I, I, I knew this, actually, from earlier, a couple of years ago. But I have since heard this from uh, people that I really... Um, admire and look up to people like Dennis Prager uh, from Prager University, who is a Jew. Uh, people like Ben Shapiro, who is also Jewish. You know what I'm saying? I've heard this from uh, uh, Rabbi Manus Friedman. I, I've heard this from a lot of Jewish people that do a great job at explaining the the Hebrew word behind this. Okay. 
The Hebrew word used in the verse, thou shalt not kill, is ratshach. The word ratshach primarily means to murder, or to kill with malicious intent. Okay? That changes things, doesn't it? Because if we look back to our Bible, how many times were the Israelites going to war and having to fight off the, the people that, that were in the land at that time, right? Uh, in the context of the sixth commandment in the Bible, it specifically prohibits the unjust taking of another person's life. This commandment is often translated as, You shall not murder, to emphasize the distinction between killing and self-defense, or during wartime and the intentional killing of innocent individuals. Okay? That just changed everything. There's a lot of people that have a problem with that. Okay? I've heard people who have had a problem with that. Uh, calling the Book of Mormon out for Nephi being a murderer. Okay? It's not what's happening here. And we see that Nephi's intent was, was uh, no, I don't want to do that. I do not want to do that. Okay? Very interesting, isn't it, when we start looking into that Hebrew stuff? Okay, let's go to the Book of Mormon Student Manual. Some people have incorrectly felt that the Spirit of the Lord has prompted them to do something contrary to what the Lord has already commanded, such as was the case with Nephi. Today, we need not worry that the Lord might prompt us to do something that runs contrary to current commandments. President Harold B. Lee has taught us who the Lord will give such promptings to. Now this is, again, brothers and sisters, this plays into the the, uh, the the future, the theme, okay, of the Book of Mormon. It plays into the theme of of prophetic mantle, okay. Nephi was a prophet. Let let us not remember, or let us not forget that. Let's remember that, okay. So President Harold B. Lee taught us who the Lord will give such promptings to. When there is to be anything different from that which the Lord has already told us, He will reveal it to His prophet and no one else. It should be remembered that the Lord gave Laban at least two chances to part with the brass plates without requiring his life. Laban was a liar, a robber, and he had at least twice sought to murder. Stealing and attempted murder could both be punishable by death. Okay, and if you want to read about that, go to Exodus 21.14, 22, uh, 22. 2 and Deuteronomy 24 7. The Lord wanted Lehi and his descendants to have the scriptural record even if one man should perish for it to happen. The brass plates blessed not only the Nephites and Mulekite nations, but they led to some of the written portions of the gold plates as well, such as Isaiah quotations and the allegory of Zenos. The Book of Mormon has blessed and will bless the lives of millions of people and nations. Ultimately, all this was at stake when Nephi stood over Laban and followed the voice of the Spirit. Now we understand, don't we? Okay? We now understand. Okay, this was not murder. Very far from it. Okay? 
not only do we get the qualification of Nephi being a prophet, okay, in his own right, being prepared to be a prophet, but we also get a bunch of um, a bunch of Mosaic law that back up Nephi, okay. And when the Lord is telling you, the, the lawgiver himself, okay, the one who gave the law to Moses, when he's telling you through the Spirit, yeah, I've passed judgment on this guy, okay? And I don't even know if Nephi knew by explaining the sword, the pure gold, that he was explaining his trial here, okay? This was a trial for Nephi. And it was a uh, it was the trial of being an instrument in the hands of the Lord to carry out judgment upon Laban. Okay, Laban was an Israelite, wasn't he? Very, very interesting. Okay. Uh, going on to verse eleven, and the Spirit said unto me again, Behold, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Okay, so. We know that he has now been commanded twice. Twice. Okay? Two times he's been commanded to slay him. Okay? And then even saying, look, he has, the Lord has delivered Laban into your hands. Okay? Let's just look up the, the uh, symbolism of the number two, since she was asked twice. Let's see if we can get anything out of that, okay? Uh, we got duality. The number two symbolizes duality and pairs. It represents the idea of two entities or elements coming together. This can be seen in various aspects of Hebrew tradition, such as the pairing of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, representing the dual aspect of divine law, okay? I find that interesting, that we have the uh, the sword mentioned, and the symbolism of the sword, and the symbolism of the the pure golden hilt, and it being something that is held in the hand of Nephi, and that he was Laban was delivered into into Nephi's hands. Okay, very interesting, isn't it? Um. We have another meaning here, division and separation. In some cases, the number two can symbolize division or separation. For example, it may be used to represent the separation of sacred and profane, clean and unclean, or holy and unholy. Uh, witness and testimony, uh, covenant and relationship, balance and harmony, creation and procreation, okay. dichotomies, partnership and unity, uh, temporal and eternal. Okay, lots. I'm not going to go through all of those, just for the sake of time. But just think about that type of thing as you read the scriptures. Let's train ourselves to look. Okay, train ourselves to look for how many times things are asked, and then look at the symbolism of that. It will add to the themes and to the stories and to the symbolism of what we are learning and reading about. This is what. Studying the scriptures looks like, brothers and sisters. It's not a casual perusal, okay? That's, I'm not saying there's not, there's not a benefit to that. There is protection and spiritual enlightenment and upliftment to that, but this is what studying the scriptures looks like, okay? Getting out your spiritual sho shovels, your metaphorical shovels, and digging, digging beneath 
the the page level here, the scriptural page level, and get into that scriptural spiritual pay dirt. That's what it's all about. That's what it looks like. Okay. Uh, yea, and I also knew that he had sought to take away mine own life. Yea, and he would not hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, and he also had taken away our property. Okay. Going back to what President Harold B. Lee was saying. He was a, a liar, he was a thief, and he was a murderer, okay, in his heart. I'm sure that's not the only time he had uh, threatened murder or tried murder, or he'd probably had murdered before. This is not somebody who was uh, practicing the Mosaic Law, okay? Definitely not. Okay, I'm going to sake of time. I'm going to skip that note. Um, just again, I'm just going to cover the fact that he had broken the law of Moses. Okay, he... It's even premeditated. It really is. It's kind of premeditated. You know what I'm saying? It's. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I would say that, that Laban was... He, he, he uh, got a just punishment from the Lord himself. Okay. Uh, verse 12, And it came to pass that the Spirit said unto me again, Slay him, for the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Okay. What do you guys think the, the spiritual meaning of the number three is? I want you guys to look that up yourself. Okay. We know that he commanded him twice. Okay. You can look up that there's a building symbolism here. Okay. When you look up these things. And it's doing that, you will get so much more out of your scripture study. You will understand so much more. Okay, I'm going to jump around. But that, that's your homework. Put that in your scriptures, the symbolism of the number three, and apply that to the, uh, to the story that we're looking at here. Verse 13, Behold, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Now, think about that theme that was just introduced. That lesson that was just introduced. Think about where you are leading your friends and your family. I should say your family and your friends. Think about that. Have your children heard you badmouth uh, the prophet or one of the apostles? Have they heard you question your, your faith in God? Have they heard you murmur about something that, that, that the Lord has asked us to do through a prophet or an apostle? What sign, in the words of Elder Bednar, what, what sign are you showing the Lord in front of your family and your friends? Very, very, very important to think about, brothers and sisters. We need to be very careful. The road of Laman and Lemuel is a very easy, slippery slope. Okay? Uh, verse 14. And now, when I, Nephi, had heard these words, 
I remembered the words of the Lord which he spake unto me in the wilderness, saying that inasmuch as thy seed shall keep my commandments, they shall prosper in the land of promise. There is a lot there, okay? There, you, you'll see in your scriptures, there's a lot of footnotes there. You should look at those. I'm not going to look at all of them with you, but you should look at those. I'm going to say, and I would encourage you to write um, off to the side or wherever you can fit it, that this is our promise as well. This is our promise as well. Um, jumping ahead to 3 Nephi, we will find out okay, that we, those of us who live on the American continent, okay, those of us who are gathered here, and there will be another gathering that takes place, but those of us who, who are gathered here to this land of promise, we have the same uh, blessings that were given to to Joseph, and because they were given to Joseph, they were given to Lehi, and because they were given to Lehi, and that we have been um, named as children of Ephraim, uh, predominantly children of Ephraim, not solely children of Ephraim. I'm sure there's a there's a few smatterings of of representation of different tribes here and there, but as a whole, Ephraim. Um, in this land, we will be numbered among the seed of Lehi, according to the words of Christ in 3 Nephi. Okay? When he comes, he explains that to the Nephites and the Lamanites, the people who are left, uh, to greet him at, at, his, at his arrival. He explains that, that we are numbered among the seed of Lehi, Okay, that we will be numbered among the seed of Lehi. Because of that, this right here, this verse 14, it does, it's not like we're likening the scriptures. This, this is us. Like, we are numbered among with them, and this is our promise. Okay? We share that promise with them. And we share the blessings and the cursings of that promise. Okay? So just understand that. Verse 15, Yea, and I also thought that they could not keep the commandments of the Lord according to the law of Moses, save they should have the law. That's pretty logical, right? Think about, um, think about the need, or, or how, how, think about William Tyndale, okay? Let's, let's, let's think William Tyndale. Let's think about the advent of the printing press. Martin Luther, okay? Look at these these very honorable men. What they were willing to risk to make sure th that people, that the average man had the laws and the covenants of, of the Bible. That everybody had access to that. How are you going to to worship the Lord? How are you going to follow the commandments if you're not able to, to have them? Very interesting thought. When I read that, that's who I thought of. I thought of William Tyndale, okay? And making that parallel with our somewhat recent history as well. I mean, it's been almost 500 years, uh, 400 years since the King James Version came out, okay? But, but still... 
you can see where having access to the Word of God, it meant a lot more to people in the past, and we take it a lot more for granted today. Okay? Very interesting thought experiment there. Just think about that. Ponder on that. And I also knew that the law was engraven upon the plates of brass. And again, I knew that the Lord had delivered Laban into my hands for this cause, that I might obtain the records according to his commandments. Therefore, I did obey the voice of the Spirit, and took Laban by the hair of the head, and I smote off his head with his own sword. Okay. Now, you can look at, at this, and there is some symbolism. Okay. Exodus 24, verse 3. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the, uh, the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice, and said, All the words which the Lord hath said, we will do. Laban was under this covenant. He was a child, a son of the people who made this covenant. He was a perhaps in, in word only, but he was a, a participant in this covenant. And this judgment that has just been exercised upon him is a direct fulfillment on a personal level of the cursings that can happen from not obeying and following the commandments after covenanting to do so. Okay, A very extreme example, but nonetheless... A lesson to be taken seriously, brothers and sisters. Okay. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 in the Old Testament. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Okay. Go back. To George Washington. Go back to him. Our founders understood this. And you can find a lot of really interesting quotes. I'm going to read one for you, but I want you guys to think about that and perhaps add that. It's a good idea to have a study journal, brothers and sisters, where you can perhaps print out things, uh, write them down, whatever, however you like to do it. Put these things in here, and it will give you powerful knowledge. Powerful knowledge. And it will also help you to draw parallels with our day, as we're supposed to be doing, <laughs> as Nephi tells us to do all the time. Okay, um, I'm going to read you a quote from George Washington. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Okay, brothers and sisters, we were not supposed to become a nation. Like, it, it belies reason. We, there's no way we should have been able to take on Britain. And we did not take on Britain. The Lord did. The Lord, you know, nothing against my, my British brethren. I love you guys. We're, we're cousins. 
my blood and your blood under a microscope is going to look extraordinarily similar. Probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference, okay? Um, but just understand that, that, you know, American exceptionalism is a thing because God says it's a thing, not because America is exceptional. It's because of the covenant that uh, that we are under here. It's the same thing with the Nephites and the Lamanites. The Nephites stopped being exceptional when they stopped listening to the Lord. We are under the same exact thing, okay? Continuing on. And in the important revolution just accomplished in the system of their united government, the tranquil deliberations and voluntary consent of so many distinct communities from which the event has resulted cannot be compared with the means by which most governments have been established. Without some return of pious gratitude, along with an humble anticipation of the future blessings, which the past seemed to presage, these revelations arising out of the present crisis have forced themselves too strongly on my mind to be suppressed. You will join with me, I trust, in thinking that there are none under the influence of which the proceedings of a new and free government can more auspiciously, auspiciously excuse me, commence. Then Washington made a covenant with the God of the universe, saying, Since we ought to be no less persuaded that the prop, prop, wow, propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained, and since the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the republican model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps, as finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. This man understood. He understood the blessings and the cursings that went along with Israel. And he was calling upon those blessings and those cursings when we became a nation, when America became a nation. Okay? Interesting stuff to think about, brothers and sisters. We need to make those parallels and those understandings. The Book of Mormon was given to these people, to the children and the grandchildren of the Washington generation. Okay? Uh, going back to the Book of Mormon, verse 19, And after I had smitten off his head with his own sword, I took the garments of Laban and put them upon mine own body, yea, even every wit, and I did gird on his armor about my loins. And after I had done this, I went forth unto the treasury of Laban. And as I went forth towards the treasury of Laban, behold, I saw the servant of Laban, who had the keys of the treasury. And I commanded him in the voice of Laban that he should go with me into the treasury. And he supposed me to be his master Laban, for he beheld the garments, and also the sword girded about my loins. And he's... Okay, now this is the this part's kind of cool. It gives us a little bit more insight into Zoram. Okay, as we learn, his name will be in the future verses here. But Zoram. We get some insight into Zoram and the type of person he is. And I have a whole lot of respect for him because of who he was. Okay. Verse 22, And he spake unto me concerning the elders of the Jews, he knowing that his master Laban had been out by night among them. Okay. 
I'm going to read to you a verse, First uh, Nephi chapter 20. This is an Isaiah chapter, okay? It corresponds to Isaiah chapter 48. Listen to what Isaiah says here, okay? Verse 1, Hearken and hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, or out of the waters of baptism, who swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, yet they swear not in truth, nor in righteousness. Okay. We see here, Laban, I think, is perfectly described in that, in those two verses, or that verse, excuse me. Laban is perfectly described, whereas Zoram is the polar opposite. Look at what Zoram, he begins talking to who he thinks is Laban. He begins talking to him about the elders of the Jews, okay? He's talking about the church. That's what he's talking about, brothers and sisters. He starts talking about the church. What kind of guy is Zoram? He doesn't ask uh, Laban if he's been womanizing or you know if he's been drinking and stuff like that. What what bar he was hanging out at? He starts talking to him about church. It's probably not even on a, on a, on a Saturday or a Friday. You know he's he's <laughs> this is who he was. He was a church guy. He was a believer from from the window of of you know what we're able to see here from the perspective that we're getting. I get strong vibes of a religious man from Zoram, okay? A faithful dude. Verse 23, And I spake unto him as if I had been Laban, and I also spake unto him that I should carry the engravings which were upon the plates of brass to my elder brethren who were without the walls, and I also bade him that he should follow me. And he, supposing that I spake of the brethren of the church, and that I was truly that Laban whom I had slain, wherefore he did follow me. Okay, again, how does Nephi get him to go with him? He says, "Hey, let's get the uh, let, let let's grab the Bible, and let's go talk some some church with the 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 elders outside the city." And Zoram's all for it. I almost get the sense that he's excited. You know what I'm saying? Zoram strikes me as a religious person and a man of God. Okay. Just super cool. I've never actually had this impression before. Re- before when I was reading the Book of Mormon, I've read it a few times. Um, I've never gotten this impression before until I started to deep dive. Until I started looking closer, I said, "Oh my gosh, Zoram was a religious guy. Zoram was probably a Peter Priesthood type of guy. You know what I'm saying? He was he was legit. He was a man of God. Okay." Verse 27, And he spake unto me many times concerning the elders of the Jews, as I went forth unto my brethren who were without the walls. <laughs> it's almost funny now, you know. Zoram won't shut up about the church. He won't shut up about talking about the leaders of the church. He's, he's probably spouting off all sorts of Isaiah. He's probably talking about, you know what I mean, Re- reciting some Torah and stuff like that on the way. Probably driving Nephi nuts a little bit, okay? This guy strikes me as a religious guy. That's all he wants to talk about. I think that's really, really cool. 
and it it's 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 fun to see that. I think it's a fun little detail that we have overlooked a lot, and it, it makes it to me it makes it come alive. I I I have a love for Zoram now that I've never had before. I think that I'd like to hang out with Zoram someday and just talk to him. You know what I mean? Seems like a cool guy you could have a good gospel conversation with. Verse 28. And it came to pass that when Laman saw me, he was exceedingly frightened, and also Lemuel and Sam, and they fled from before my presence, for they supposed it was Laban, and that he had slain me, and had sought to take away their lives also. And it came to pass that I called after them, and they did hear me, wherefore they did cease to flee from my presence. And, when, and it came to pass that when the servant of Laban beheld my brethren, he began to tremble, and was about to flee from before me and return to the city of Jerusalem. So Zoram now realizes that he uh, made some assumptions that were incorrect. <laughs> and he he didn't dig deep enough into the situation, right? He knows, he's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Okay, verse 31, And now I, Nephi, being a large, or a man large in stature, and also having received much strength of the Lord, therefore I did seize upon the servant of Laban, and I held him that he should not flee. Now, in my mind, I I picture Nephi doing a a textbook arm drag and an and a hop and pop and getting Zoram on the ground, getting uh getting wrist control, okay, and maybe putting him in a half Nelson or something like that. Okay, holding him down. I, I picture Nephi as being a, a natural, perhaps even a trained wrestler in the ancient Hebrew arts of wrestling. Okay. I think it's cool that, that he, he points that out. He's like, hey, I was a pretty strong guy, you know. I, I assume he was young still, but he was a pretty strong guy, and I was able to to hold Zoram down, basically. Because of the strength that the Lord gave me, I was able to hold Zoram down. That part that's just entertaining to me. I love that. And I, I think of Nephi as having some, some, some wrestling ability. Okay, that, That's just me. Verse 32, And it came to pass that I spake with him, that if he would hearken unto my words, as the Lord liveth, and as I live, even so that if he would hearken unto our words, we would spare his life. Okay, this verse is cool. Because Nephi has just, he has just had to slay Laban. And how easy would it be for him to, on his own, to justify, now that he has shed blood once, to say, you know what, we got to cover our tracks. Let's take Zoram out. Okay. Nephi probably recognized that Zoram was a religious guy, that he was a good man. Nephi doesn't, in, in his heart, Nephi doesn't want to kill anybody. He had to be told three times to kill Laban, who had tried to kill him twice. Okay. That gives us a really cool window into the heart of Nephi. He was not the type of guy that wanted to raise the sword. That was not his go-to. That wasn't even his last resort. Okay. Nephi tells him, dude, okay, just listen to us, listen to my words, and we're going to spare your life. Verse 33, And I spake unto him, even with an oath, that he need not fear that he should be a free man like unto us if he would go down into the wilderness with us. 
On my scriptures I have written to the side liberty versus Babylon. Think about what Think about what Zoram is about to give up. Think about what Lehi and his family have given up. They have given up the comforts of home. And in so doing, they've given up the comforts of Babylon. Um, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, they talk about the flesh pots of Egypt. They yearn for the flesh pots of Egypt, okay? I imagine people out there cooking up some steaks or some, some, some kebabs or something like that. You know what I'm saying? You can just go down there. It's probably a buck. They, you know, they got the, the Egyptian value menu over there. You can pay a dollar and get you a kebab or something like that. But they yearn for this stuff, these conveniences of, of Babylon, of Egypt. Okay? There's a lot of things that Babylon makes convenient for us. A lot of things that they that they want you to get hooked on so that you stay. But look at what the opposing path is. It's it's freedom, it's liberty. Okay, it's liberty. That is important. And I would mark that in my scriptures. Because I did. And it's up to you. But I would mark something to that effect that portrays that idea to you. Okay? Think about that market. Verse 34. And I also spake unto him, saying, Surely the Lord hath commanded us to do this thing. And shall we not be diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord? Therefore, if thou wilt go down into the wilderness to my father, thou shalt have place with us. This to me, this to me uh, solidifies that Zoram was a man of God. Because that was like the final cherry on top that Nephi gives as an offering, as an oath with Zoram. And it is only after that, after he, he extends this, this religious idea that the Lord has commanded them to do this. Maybe maybe he cited some scripture to him as well. Maybe he read him some Isaiah or something like that, or, or some Jeremiah. But either way, it is only after this that we get verse 35. And it came to pass that Zoram did take courage at the words which I spake. Now Zoram was the name of the servant. And he promised that he would go down into the wilderness unto our father. Yea, and he also made an oath unto us that he would tarry with us from that time forth. So cool. So cool. Zoram was a good man. I just, I can't say it enough. He takes courage at the fact that Nephi starts speaking his language to him. Right? You can see why in later in the Book of Mormon, Lehi mentions the fact that Zoram has been such a good friend. He's basically been like a best friend to Nephi because these guys were speaking the same language to each other. They, I'm sure that Nephi found great comfort in his friendship with Zoram. Uh, Zoram is, is basically like the, uh, like the brother that he should have had type thing. He's, he's what Laman and Lemuel should represent, okay? And I think, I almost wonder if that's why God gave him Zoram so that he could have that older brother. I don't know, just a thought. 
Verse 36, Now we were desirous that he should tarry with us for this cause, that the Jews might not know concerning our flight into the wilderness, lest they should pursue us and destroy us. Uh, and it came to pass that when Zoram had made an oath unto us, our fears did cease concerning him. Man, oaths meant a lot more back then, didn't they? Really interesting that you could just make an oath. Hey, swear to me, make an oath unto me that you're going to do this thing. Okay, yeah, I make the oath. Okay, we're good. All right, trust you. Complete trust, okay? 38, final verse. And it came to pass that we took the plates of brass and the servant of Laban and departed into the wilderness and journeyed unto the tent of our father. Make the 180 mile uh, plus journey back through the rough and tough wilderness, uh, marauders, bandits, okay, infested places, back to the, the tent of Father Lehi. Brothers and sisters, I love, I love reading and digging into these chapters. This, you know, it's funny. I was speaking to somebody and they were talking about the about how this this was, you know, they, they were finding some value in it, right, in what I was doing. And it's funny because I said, you know, I'm great, I, or I'm, I'm grateful that, that's, that you're finding value in stuff, but I'll be honest with you, I think I am getting more out of this than anybody. Like, I, I love this. And I'm learning so much more. I'm, like, it's, it's funny. Joseph Smith said, you know, the gospel becomes delicious. It's, it's becoming delicious to me. That is the only way I can describe my feelings about digging into these chapters of the Book of Mormon. It be, it's the gospel is becoming delicious to me in a way that I don't think it ever has. I've always loved it, and, I, and I've, I've had waves like this where I find things. And I, when I have dug deep beneath the scriptural dirt, I find things that are delicious to me. But this is, it is plain, and it is precious. And all you have to do is look. All you have to do is look. I'm not special. I'm a guy that knows how to Google stuff and that knows how to look up sites that have the, the Hebrew translations of, of the, uh, the Old Testament and stuff like that. And I can look at those words and see what possible translations of them are. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing I'm doing that you guys cannot do yourself. Brothers and sisters, I am grateful for the Book of Mormon. I am grateful for the opportunity I have to be able to put my thoughts out to the to the the internet, put it out on the record, and to raise my voice as an Ephraimite in support of the Savior, in support of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in support of the doctrine and the scriptures, ultimately in support of the foundation of Jesus Christ. Um, that foundation of prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. I know that if we hold true to these, these gospel truths, that as we study, as we, as we be the people that God wants us to be, that we will be protected in these last days of the last days. I love you guys. I'm grateful for you. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.